Professor, can you hear me? Welcome or welcome back. Hello? <laughs> Professor, I'm lost. Try again. It's dark in here. This is Beers with Alice. Threats, Beers, and also Lewis. Welcome or welcome back. This is Beers with Talos, episode 128. Today is November 11th, 2022. I am joined by Matt and Laureen. Welcome to the show, both of you. Hello. How are we doing today? We are reveling in the fall of Twitter. Oh, yeah. That is just a... Oh, it's... To frame it's a, for everywhere where we are. It there. is. Yeah, remember, this is November 11th, so it's not out of business yet when you're <laughs> listening to this. But it seems like it's on its way. The 18th. What did I say? 11th? The 11th. Yeah, it's the 18th. <laughs> Jesus, God. It's been a, like, I, I'm even looking at the thing. I don't know why I just subtracted a whole week. Uh, I guess it's just been that kind I of I can't week ignore this week and it would be yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah, 100%. 100%. It's been a rough one. It's been a rough one. Uh, we're going to start today off uh, the same way we start every week off. We'll go around the table. Uh, I think we should tell everybody, one, apologies, it's been a, an extra week since uh, our last episode. We recorded this episode once before. Today is 128 Take 2, uh, and I think you'll see why when we start getting into the topic at hand. Uh, there was just enough new information that became available between the last recording and when it would have been released that we just felt the need to to start all over and redo the redo the episode. Uh, but jumping in, I actually, I have a question for you guys today. So um, back in the day, used to work in, in a co-working space. That co-working space had a, a bunch of guys who would get together and just jam, uh, you know, like kind of a little cover band kind nice of a thing. Uh, did the, did like the local like uh, company battle the bands things as a fundraiser, all kinds of fun stuff. So that co-working space is having the Christmas party. And they have asked if we would we would play that. So we put together, you know, five or six of the old songs we used to do all the time. But we need a couple Christmas songs. Like, what are a couple good holiday or Christmas songs do you think we could throw into the mix? That would be like a fun rock thing? band cover version. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the whole band will be together. And actually, I think my son's going to play bass for us this time. I think Xavier's going to be on bass. What was That'd that be Beach Boys song they did with Santa Sleigh? Little Deuce Coop with new Beach lyrics. Boys song? Yeah, I like that. If you're doing like... Little Saint Nick or something like that. Little Saint Nick. Something like that. Is this like... I don't know, I kind of like the older... Yeah. I like the older little songs. Little Saint Nick. Yeah. Oh, this has like a uh, great little animated video that goes with it as well. That's probably the best call. Uh, yeah, it does. Who else it has really a does. Christmas album that's worth a squeak? It, that would be like a rock band sort of deal. Yeah, I'm more of a, like an older, like Nat King Cole, like kind of period. I mean, there there is something to be said for a uh, modern or rockier cover of a of an of an older classic as well. I'd be up for reviewing updated covers of Christmas classics. Uh, do, I would I would be I would be okay do that Wham song. Looking through some of that. Oh yeah, that'll at least lose people that. some Last games. Christmas, I gave you my heart, but the very next yeah. day, you gave it away. This year, yep, yep. because I, I haven't learned, I'm gonna give it to somebody else and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, same shit, different year. Maybe I should try doing something not on a big day like Christmas. <laughs> we'll just, yeah. All right, I, I think Wham Wham might be a good Christmas party hit. I don't know. We'll see how that goes. I'll I'll, I'll see. What, I'll bring it up to the guys and uh, see what we come up with. But uh, what's going on with you, Matt? Um, I've talked on on. Uh, on this podcast before about how I like to play uh, Rainbow Six Siege and how mm -hmm. it is the most toxic gaming environment I've ever been part of. Um, Easily. And so uh, I've recently started playing a game, uh, you know, it's, it's a few years old now, um, called Squad. And the environment is the... 100% opposite of Rainbow Six Siege. Everything about the game's mechanics 
forces you to play together in teams of roughly nine players and there's multiple teams on your your side and you kind of work as units together like every like the res function and like how you need to redo ammo and everything else every and and because you have to have people with different um kits like you have to be a team player to to play this game and so everybody who plays it at this point is has bought into that concept so like every game i play of this game where we shoot each other in the face is super laid back and chill at the at the squad level and it was just really weird to like you know pick up another shooter because it's been a while since i've been playing some shooters and go oh, i'm gonna try this one um, i've seen some cool videos on it and then find the environment just like pretty cool and like still like young and dumb like there's no great sophistication to the to the humor there but uh very much nicer to like just exist in than some of those running gun shooters this is very much slower paced squad based work together sort of thing that could be fun i mean like a definitely got change of pace shooter right yeah 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 it's very much the kind of game where where i i would bring in folks uh, that i know to like hang out and like you know build stories together like it's a it's a story generator because it doesn't even have like progression like you just you play around and then it shows you your stats and then you play the next round and like you get no points or weird cash that you can spend or anything. It's like, nope, next game. Everyone's back to zero <laughs> and you just keep playing just because you enjoy that style of game. It's a, it's a, it's very much a, the kind of thing where the next day you're like, Oh, Hey, we overran this mortar outpost that the enemy had. And then we took their mortars and we called command and like, we have mortars and they're like, Oh cool. We'll drop bombs here. And we did for a while. And it was fun. Like <laughs> it's just, that kind of like narrative generation kind of piece uh, that that I really like in games. That's cool, and I kind of like games also that you don't just like pay ten bucks to win. No, you know, it's the, there's no the there's no microtransactions and, yeah. at all. It's uh, you load in, and it's sort. To be fair, I have had to spend a fair amount of hours on YouTube, like understanding what happens because it's a fairly realistic like shooter um, with modern. Um, weaponry so and that's what i mean by slower pace because like the engagements can be like 400 meters and like the first time that you know that you're in trouble is you hear like two snaps and all of a sudden like you dive to the ground you're like i have no idea where the bad guy is (laughs) and you're like now what do i do yeah and you're hoping that someone in the squad saw something that can like give you some kind of bearing or direction or something because i spend most of my time like curled up in the fetal position like i don't know what's happening (laughs) sounds realistic at least yeah <laughs> I, I was gonna say i mean that's like I, that sounds like a thursday to me like that's mitch has had a rough week <laughs> <laughs> lorene how are you doing today doing all right what's been going on with you uh so uh i've been getting my ass kicked a little bit uh at work and so i was like it's getting dark i'm gonna go out tonight so my husband and i decided we're gonna go to a show so we're gonna go to a, a concert like a, at a little venue it's like a hundred people fit in the venue or something like that right but the band there was amazing and after like two songs they were totally ripping and um they were playing this cover that everyone loved everyone got up and started dancing for this cover and we're all rocking along and then a man dies about 10 feet from me (laughs) like just oh fell over had a heart attack middle of the song and uh as we left, the paramedics were coming in. So that was my night last Shit, night. Man. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to go out and do something good for myself. Uh, well, I mean, that band has a story now. Well, the, <laughs> the really funny thing is uh, everybody that was there kind of had the same response. It was like, well, you know, I wouldn't mind going that way, actually. I was... <laughs> Everyone was yeah, having, he was I like mean, in a room with like, a bunch of people having a great time listening to music he really liked. Um, yeah, I would have no problem with that either. Like that would be, I mean, yep. And uh, your your squad conversation reminded me that uh, it actually sounds a lot like DCS, which is the digital combat simulator. It's a flight uh, sim. The, the airplane thing where you have to like read actual airplane manuals to know what you're doing in the plane. Yes, actually. Yeah. 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 And learn how radar works and shit like that. The bar for that game is so high that assholes just aren't going to put in the effort to clear it. And so everyone you're playing with is so committed to the game that like 
they're there to play the game. And if they're an asshole, that's like a, a side effect of them as opposed to the primary reason that they're there. The startup, like you literally have to do the exact same startup procedure that a pilot would have to do. Like the same, the, the, to the extent possible for modern planes, but absolutely for older planes, the whole interior of the con- uh, com- cockpit is fully and correctly modeled. And every switch does the thing that that switch does in an actual aircraft. And so, like for a, for a, for a modern fighter, if you want to turn on your power, well, first you have to turn on the auxiliary power engine that supplies power to the main engine that allows that power, the engine to start. And so you're like clicking through the entire checklist. Like it's crazy. It's crazy. Also, that another nice. game where I had to spend many hours in YouTube to figure out what I was even supposed to do to get off the ground. Why can't we just like COD like everybody else and spend our 60 bucks every <laughs> year and then just be on with our lives? 60? Why do I have to spend half my life watching YouTube videos on how to play the f-ing game I downloaded? I don't want to do with squeakers. It's <laughs> <Did> you- <laughs> oh. <laughs> now firmly in your vocabulary. <laughs> yeah, man, that's, that's not going anywhere. So today we are going to talk about uh, the vulnerabilities that have been found in SSL, open SSL. Uh, we started talking about this a couple weeks ago, and between the time where we had those initial reactions and when that episode uh, would have come out, there was enough new information that uh, was come across and that uh, protections were released. We got to see exactly what was happening in this situation uh, with a little more context. So we decided we'd rather I mean, actually looking back, we were dumb as shit because literally we recorded the episode and while we were wrapping up the episode, the release happened. So if we had just waited two hours. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like, yeah. but like, been a whole different our show. schedule would get us three of us together is is tricky so and and we had to record uh we were recording off time in a, at an unusual time for us so it got kind of jammed in early on a tuesday morning i had just driven yeah. six and a half hours down the east coast yeah, you were down here yet oh so your sound will be better now because you're in your main setup yeah yeah much better the whole thing's gonna be better now right yep so initially, let's just give uh, a little bit of background. So initially, the uh, issue was reported to the OpenSSL project mid-October, October 17. Uh, and the vulnerability in play for this affects only version 300 to 306. Uh, so, and that is something that was useful is useful to know because that greatly limits uh, exposure for a lot of people who hadn't even. I believe that three the latest version had only been out for like six months or so, hadn't it? I think from September of last year, three O was released. Yeah, that the three O came out. Yeah, so a lot of people hadn't gotten around to um, updating to that uh, or updating their libraries. So <clears throat> that was a, a a bit helpful in making sure that this wasn't something that was the um, absolute internet dumpster fire that something like heartbleed was right yeah we i mean that i mean to i mean we don't it's not like we walk around with knowledge of what the threat landscape is for any particular version of software is so when you first hear open ssl is announcing a critical vulnerability like as a security person you're like uh like the kind of bad that could be is like really really bad um, and so in, in kind of, because I mean, basically almost everything that is involved with securing some foreign communications in modern computing uses the open SSL library. Um, and if you ever have someone who's like, it's okay, I don't use the open SSL library. I have my own encryption library. Don't use mm-hmm. whatever it is they're selling because <laughs> it's not the way to go. Almost certainly. Um, I think one of the funniest, uh, uh, the, I think the last ShmooCon I was at, one of the funniest talk titles I, I ever uh, had seen, and it was a good talk, um, was, uh, I think it was called something like Homegrown Encryption or Bringing a Knife to a Gunfight. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, this all checks out. Like, like one of the canonical really things. Hard. It's one of yeah. the canonical things you don't do, like land war in Asia, ha ha ha, and... Uh, Roll, roll your, your own, own crypto. Roll your own crypto. Don't, yeah, no, it's bad. Bad time. Um. So, but yeah. I. So the first thing you, you're like, oh, this could be because because we had initially when I heard about it. Um. This is before we got the embargo details. 
um, my brain was like, oh, this could be... Because then you're talking about, like, I can take any web server offline because it uses OpenSSL, or I could take any email client offline because it uses SSL and it's encryption. Or I could, you know, like, like the, the, the threat landscape for OpenSSL at rest is enormous. And it's only, like, the most critical things that we do on a day-to-day basis. Um, so when we think about the world's reaction to OpenSSL and how it was like everyone was kind of wound up about it, understand that if you just come out with the statement in general, or if your understanding in general is um, there's a problem in OpenSSL and it's bad, like real bad, it, it could be like real bad. Um, it could be yeah, worse than Heartbleed was. Well, one thing I wasn't aware of uh, when we were initially was that um, Node.js, the application runtime, like runs its own embedded version of OpenSSL. So that has to like, that's a wholly separate patch cycle. Like, you know, OpenSSL can't fix that alone. Like Node.js has, or people using Node.js have to go manually fix that themselves. Well, that's yeah, so the other have, big I mean, problem here yeah. is that you have no idea what parts of your software are using OpenSSL where in their supply chain. You know, someone's using it, right? But where in your supply chain is it? If you're running any modern web app, I promise you Node.js is someplace in there. Like somebody used Node.js to do well, I mean, something like on the front open end. OpenSSL in general is going to be embedded in a lot of stuff, right? And you yeah. don't have a list of yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> nope. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, so there has been proof of concept uh, on Windows systems. It's rumored that there's also uh, Linux systems could also be vulnerable to this. So we have we, we now have a, a pretty complete picture of the uh, attack surface here, right? Like at least we have a better understanding of it and we've seen some protections already get rolled out. Uh, so we have an even better understanding uh, of what's going on because we can see how everybody's kind of defending against it. Uh, Matt, yeah, you talked about the embargo a little bit. I wanted to get down into um, how this actually gets exploited and, and why it's a problem. But first, the embargo. Like, we had a timeline to work against there. Yeah, and, and so a number of vendors had access to the underlying information. So it might be for for people who, who don't work for a vendor, be interesting to know that, that you know, OpenSSL recognizes that it's, it's everywhere. And so um, it shared the information out with vendors for a couple of reasons. One, it allows those vendors to start the assessment process to figure out, okay, which of my products um, are impacted. Um, and then it also allows OpenSSL, and this became critical in their communications, to start to get feedback from experts about how bad this really is. Um, because the first set of experts they went to, and I think this is this is reasonable because you know if we if we look just at like CVE twenty twenty two thirty six zero two, which is um, the Stack Overflow with the four byte overwrite. Um, if you say I have a Stack Overflow in in OpenSSL, now you're like in in very excited town uh, because Stack Overflows are or have been, and we'll talk about a little bit about why not so much, but have been historically like. Like just one of the best ways to get to get RCE in terms of, of what your options are, because a lot of the control structures for um, program execution flow are stored on the stack. So if you're able to manipulate the stack, you're able to manipulate um, the way the, the program flows and you can dictate that. And that's how in a stack overflow you take control is you change how it flows directly on the stack. Um. And at some point in time, someone gives you a cookie. Is my so yeah. Let's so let's talk real quick. (laughs) So just to 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 kind of level set. So when you store information in memory, um, and I'm going to speak in real broad terms, in general, you're storing it one of two ways. You're either storing it on the stack, or you're storing it in the heap. And the heap is sort of a dynamic area where you can size memory and say, I need one this big. I need one this big. On the stack, generally you were saying, I need one exactly this size, and this is how big it's going to be every time you come to me, and this is what I want. And it is kind of the oldest school of ways to store data, and it's a way that I've seen, like, depending on how you're trained in, in low-level language, like some people have a weird tendency to like to place thing on the stack. I don't know what their, what their thought process is. Um, but... When you store in the stack, you basically say, I'm going to have this here. And then every time inside of a program, a function is called, 
um, the compiler will write out kind of where the function you were at is on the stack and then start storing variables. And the key to the stack is in, in many um, processor architectures, it's very easy if you, if you overwrite, if you, if you write more data than you've allocated on the stack, you then start to write data into that piece where the compiler had written where the next function is. And so you're essentially able to say, now I tell you where the next function is, now I send you to where I want you to go, and now I control the flow of the program, and I tell you what to execute. And that's kind of like the gross basics of, of a stack overflow. Um, Larry, maybe you want to kind of take through what a stack cookie is and maybe talk a little bit about compiler flags kinda, to kind of prep where we're headed. Yeah, sure. So um, to add a little bit more context from what Matt had to say, uh, every local variable from a function, if you, you're writing C, you write a local variable, that's on the stack. All of them. Even the ones you call malloc on, the pointer lives on the stack. Right? So um, above that on the stack, traditionally you have two things. You have a stored base pointer, which is the... Uh, bottom of the stack from the function that called you and you have the return pointer which is the uh, pointer to the instruction after the call instruction that called your function so um, what people have done to try to prevent these overflows uh, is they have taken um, they've added an extra local variable between uh, the buffers that are likely to have uh, copies so any sort of array those will be put at the bottom of the stack, and then you'll have a cookie, and then you will have your um, your uh, primitive types above that, and then it'll be the stored base pointer and stored return pointer. So what happens here is that extra variable that's stuck in between is provided with a random value that is also stored globally. It's generated on uh, generally load time, and when you go to return from the function before it does that, uh, it'll go and check to see if that randomized value is maintained in that variable. And if it's not, then it throws an exception. Unfortunately, the first thing that Windows did um, when they built structured exception handling is that the, the, the nested structured exception handlers also live on the stack. Um, the way that works is the thread local storage stores the next handler on the stack, so the one that's closest to you. Uh, it's got a bitmap to show you what type of exceptions it can handle, and then a function pointer. And then it's got a next pointer to the next exception handler. So you walk up your exception handler stack and you say, can you handle it? No, go to the next one. Can you handle it? No, go to the next one. If it gets all the way to the top, it's an unhandled exception. So what you could do is just write straight up to the exception handler, fail your cookie check, and then just have overwritten the pointer to the exception handler and still run your shit. That's how it used to be. Um, we've uh, moved on a little bit from that so that uh, dealing with stack cookies is a little bit more difficult. But also, I think one of the things that people have learned is to not do so much work on the stack as computing has changed. Um, in the kernel, this is particularly important because you only get like three pages of stack space on the kernel, specifically to stop you from doing this garbage. Um, so any complex data types are moved necessarily into the heap. So we used to do a lot of stack-based overflows because they were prevalent and they were easy. And nowadays, heap overflows are more complicated but more versatile. And here is why that is. If you're on the stack, uh, the things that you can overwrite are always the same. They're picked at compile time, right? Your stack is set in stone how it's going to work when you compile that program, period. Um, except for Aloka, we're not going to talk about that. It's stupid. Um, on the heap, though, I can manipulate the heap. So I can decide what type of uh, complex data structure I would like to overwrite by changing what data structure is immediately after the one that's got the overwrite in it. Uh, so it's it's a lot more uh, versatile. Um, but you do have other options on the heap besides just overwriting a return pointer or exception handler. Um, so that base pointer that's stored on the stack immediately before the return pointer, um, if you just overwrite that base pointer, then uh, you control where the stack is pointing 
in the next function. So you can get control that way by changing a basically every single local variable from the function that calls you. When it returns, you can point it back inside your stack, uh, you know, data that you control and have it think that your data is the local variables for that previous function and get control that way. So there's a lot of things that you can do. And, and that was one of the issues that I had with the way people look at bugs in general these days. Uh, I want to preface by saying that I got to look at the patches for OpenSSL and I have not had time to dig into uh, exactly the code that's around them. But looking at the patches, I'm very surprised that I didn't hear some people say some things. Um, people seem to be kind of myopically focused on, can I get execution with this bug? And that is not the correct way to think about exploitation. The right way to think about exploitation is what primitives can I create with this bug? What weird machine states can I add to the standard states that the programmer intended to exist? And then I can chain those together or repeat them or turn them into different primitives and build those together into an exploit. So one of the things that I saw, first thing I thought when I saw this is, oh, that's a null pointer overwrite. I can just leak the cookie out, right? Because if I overwrite my null pointer immediately before the cookie, then uh, I do printf on that string. Uh, what's going to happen is it's just not going to stop printing. It'll keep printing until it gets a null. And so it'll walk through and print out the stack cookie back to me, right? So um, anytime you had a service where you didn't spawn a new process explicitly for every connection, that cookie would be preserved across all connections because the process is the one that owns it. So if you could leak out the cookie, then you could combine that with another bug or rethink how to use this bug a second time uh, knowing the cookie already. We'll get into stacking exploits a little bit more after my next which i mean and by the way thank you for breaking that down and making that so simple i mean i was I, of course duh like that. i apologize <laughs> that is how it works though you could if you if you just got a uh, some graph paper out and you just like drew boxes so listen, as listen, i was listen, talking listen. it would be oh, yeah. nice. if, if you're need, on the, i need everybody to go back five minutes yeah, if you're on the youtube and, and try that again at half speed yeah if you're watching this on the youtube or the twitch stream you can just click here and it'll take you to a, a little run through of that where they'll uh, they'll have like the stack drawn for you and it'll make a lot more sense. Yeah, we got a graphic. It's the uh, yeah the motion graphic version that's illustrated. It'll be right so there. yeah that that uh that lesson on exploitation is brought to you by. A <laughs> uh, <laughs> flip that out. <laughs> um. Yeah, so, so, all right, so to go back to, to, right. to go back what's imp to what's the key piece of that um, is that there is this randomized value, and if you mess with that value, there are processes in, in, the, in the flow of computing that will catch that and will halt the system and throw, throw, uh, throw an error unless it's handled in some way. Um, so that is the, the modern operating system protections that are built into the stack that mitigate to some extent these two vulnerabilities. Um, and the interesting thing that, that I think Lorraine was talking about there is that is the primitives piece. And, and, and essentially is that that's like, what can I put onto, in this case, the stack and how, what does that give me? And so the, the way, the thing that you'll hear most about this bug currently is the current understanding is that it is most likely? Um, I think I think I've heard. Here's here's how I've heard it described: the primitives that are left through through triggering these two vulnerabilities make it a challenge to reach code execution. And I think that's the safest way to say this. Um, it's a straightforward byte overwrite uh, on one, and I think if if I remember correctly, on the other one, you can write an arbitrary number of periods onto the stack. I think. If I'm correct, those are the two things that you can do. And those are, if, if you're looking at uh, stack-based exploitation, particularly on the modern stack, um, those are two kind of challenging places to start from if your only goal is to reach remote code execution. I think the main thing that, that Lorraine said that I want to call for you there is that the way to approach what is essentially 
the challenge of gaining remote code execution is not to rely on single individual um, exploits necessarily or vulnerabilities. Is how can I put together the different options I have to attack this system to allow me to reach code execution? And in this case, it may be that there are circumstances where you can utilize these bugs to then show you what that stack cookie is, then then allows you to do something else with another bug, and you can handle that stack cookie as you, as you, as you execute on that. So to some extent, even if... I think the way to look at this bug is even if you if you have faith that they, you can't have remote code execution from it, it does weaken to some extent your your um, process or your your computing state. And so, from OpenSSL's perspective, I thought this was really challenging, right? So OpenSSL is in a position where they have to say communicate in very simple terms to the community: this is how bad this bug is, and and it being OpenSSL. The difference between a critical and a major um, is is substantial, uh, and so I I think they probably actually did the right thing first in initially labeling this a critical because I think that their understanding of, of the process. But as they were getting feedback, and it increasingly became apparent that the majority of the way a modern operating system would implement this, if you have the correct pieces in place. Um, it is most likely that based solely on this bug, it is probably something at the major level, not the critical level. Um, however, what my concern is, and I don't know how to fix this when I'm looking at, at how they're communicating, it requires a level of understanding of nuance that one third of the people of this pretty technical podcast have. <laughs> I don't have it. Mitch doesn't have it. Lorraine's got it. Um, none I actually of thought our... of a couple ways while you were talking to own this thing on some older systems. Yeah, and also, and that's the other thing. Um, if you are developing on an unusual um, hardware architecture, like if you're doing OT work, um, if you're building those kind of embedded systems, um, if you're somehow constrained in terms of what compiler you can use, um, like there's a myriad of things that and this is where the nuance comes in, um, and and I think, you know, I think the the amount of information out there is enough to help developers do that. But in terms of if you're relying solely on the on the on the work of OpenSSL to describe this, unless you really understand the architecture you're on, if you're working on some unusual architecture or some un unusual constraints that that limit you from using some of these things, you don't have a good understanding of how these primitives affect your architecture. Um, and I don't know how, I don't know how to advise OpenSSL. Um, they, they made, it, they made a, a policy statement and, and this is their policy is that they make their criticality determinations on the, the majority case of their users. And I think if that's their policy, then, then major is probably the correct way to, to, to profile this. Um, but it, it does leave some, some potentially high severity areas of very unusual computing um, having to understand that you still need to address this aggressively if you're using this, this library. Cheaper Android phones would be a problem, but likely they're not running three, right? Right. And that's the, yeah, and exactly that. It is the, the flip side of this and the reason that I think, think that OpenSSL is okay is the likelihood that you're, you're using one of these wonky architectures and are also on the cutting edge of OpenSSL libraries fairly low. Yeah, um, yeah. Unless, uh, as Lorene, as you pointed out, unless you're building some fairly sophisticated, uh, if you're required to, to handle fairly sophisticated um, government requirements for certain things, it may require you to be on this level to handle these these additional protocols that were added on three um so so yeah uh, people people have a tendency to to kind of and i know that i was kind of aggravated and our, our initial impression was that it was an error to adjust that criticality from critical to major but but in OpenSSL's position and given the policy that they have in place i think it was the right call and, and i think i think they really handled this like like in a in a useful way, um, it also helps that they're an open source uh, project, so that that the world like they they had the option um, on I think it's November first when this was released I don't remember but as soon as that was released, every um, good 
side exploiter in the world took a crack at this because open SSL is is a thing that if you haven't if you have own, have an exploit for you're in, you're sitting really pretty um uh and and their collective response um and I've and I've looked at a lot of really good write-ups um I think Datadog had a, a really good deep dive on it um um the the collective intelligence that came back I think supports you know their their assessment Yes. Actually, I read that Datadog post and it was actually very good as well. We should put a link to that uh, in the show notes because I, I, that took everybody through, took the reader through like a couple different exploit scenarios uh, and kind of impressed the the depth and breadth of the issue here. Uh, we, we saw this last time there was a major open SSL problem with Heartbleed. Everybody remembers, everybody that was in the security community then, um, you know, remembers what a big deal that one was. Uh, and but how does this compare to something? The last time we dealt with uh, a big vulnerability in a library, uh, most recent, I should say, a uh, major event there was was like Log4j, right? Uh, Log4j is another very prevalent library uh, that's probably in. I, I I wouldn't even know how to count how many different software packages include Log4j, and and the same is true for the ubiquity of. Uh, open SSL. So how do those two compare and contrast in terms of what is um, like, w- what's the danger here to, to the average company user? Um, well, let's start there. Company versus user. What's the danger to the average user? I here? think given the, so Nothing. like, like we said, we don't have a good, uh, we don't, we don't walk around with an idea of what the prevalence of different libraries are, but looking at a couple of different companies, and I don't know the methodology, but I've repeatedly seen different folks come in and say that the, the penetration of open SSL is like less than 2%. Um, it's like in the two to 3% kind of range in terms of, of available, however they scan the internet or queried, um, GitHub or however they went through and did this, um, they, the the landscape of it was much tighter than Log4j. Log4j, um, one, exploitation was roughly trivial um, on that bug. Um, once, like, and like everything else, once you understood it, it was not hard and it was fairly reliable um, to go through. Um, there are some weird things about Log4j that made it uh, differently problematic in that you could send data to a web server and then have it um, actually the attack occur on your logging server, right? Because data is the, the data that, that it would, would handle is passed around inside your systems. More so, I'm going to say just a rough guess, kind of not being an expert in, 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 in full stack development, but it's not, I don't think you have that same kind of data necessarily passed through as commonly with OpenSSL as you do with Log4j. So you, you ended up having a situation where you were having to warn companies for like, you had to like, like no, everything in your whole stack needs to be looked at because the, the places where we're going to see these kind of things are any place you're interested in logging it, that's the attack surface, um, which is, is different than we're seeing here. So the, the, the landscape was smaller. It was easier to, um, it, is, it is harder to exploit. Um, what else is is different or the same about it? It is it is similarly challenging to track down in your environment, though. Um, so one of the things that we didn't talk about is like this was going to ask about is like determining how you're vulnerable to each one, like which one's oh, easier I get to a, see. Like, I get an hey, idea. I got this problem here. Uh, there's okay. a list of uh, encryption algorithms that are only supported by 3.0 and up. So you could just ask for those algorithms for every uh, SSL connection you can find. And then if it let you in or if it handshakes, then you know that it's three. And if it doesn't, then you know it's not three. But um, so when you said penetration earlier and you had that low number, that was for 3.0 in particular, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. three, yeah. So make it clear. And, and, and again, the penetration for what, OpenSSL is huge. Yeah, OpenSSL is like mostly complete. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so no, I'm sorry, <laughs> I wasn't clear. Thank you. Um, uh, what was I going to say? 
but of mostly complete, three plus some percent yeah. is on this vulnerable version, which is still pretty pretty big. But Versions. so the one thing that we haven't talked about is like if if you are a unsophisticated organization um, having to look at it, what you might do is go, oh, I'm going to look at all my computers and see what libraries installed. Um, okay, um, uh, I, I have a couple of modern Red Hats, um, and I keep them up to date because I'm trying hard. Um, so I have uh, like like so Open three Open SSL three is default in some of the modern versions of Red Hat. Um, however, um, I have these other servers that are older. Um, they're running things. They have Open SSL one or two, and so I don't have to worry about it, which is not true, <laughs> because you can statically compile libraries. <laughs> And so uh, you can actually like so uh, 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 the node the node JS thing that you were talking about earlier is an example of that. Yeah. Where to to ensure the appropriate functionality is available, applications will build in their selection of library, um, and so you have to basically look at imports and outputs and statically compiled um, libraries to on all of your executables to then understand is it running this. So it's it's actually more challenging. Um, in some ways to kind of track down. Um, you wouldn't even get and, exports if you statically compile it. Yeah. No, you wouldn't. You're going to have to use uh, like uh, bindef function sim search, something like that. And say so you're going to have to actually search through like the compiled the code, yeah. code You'd base have to, to figure out. You get a fingerprint for it uh, using like a prime factorization and then you, or not factorization. Uh, multiplying primes together, whatever you call it. Uh, and then you would just s drag that fingerprint across your program and see if you could find those functions. Find a match. Yeah. Yeah, so it's actually a little that more challenging. That sounds tedious as hell. Yeah. And, and <laughs> you could automate it, but it would suck. Yeah. Um, so, again, uh, but still, it, it is also... It, it was It's a weird sort of own, because if I were guessing... And this is somewhat based on what we saw at Cisco, um, although I haven't looked directly at the PCERT report on this. Um, most um, on-premise stuff will not be affected by this because they were built on previous versions of OpenSSL. There hasn't been, unless you need some of that functionality in 3, a driving reason to move off of those older versions. Um, there's not, it's not like there's a security benefit to moving to 3 versus staying on 1 or 2. Um, it's a capabilities mm -hmm. shift. Um, however, the place where you're more likely to run into this is in cloud services, um, where they're trying to keep up to date on things and, and, you know, are, are logging in, are bringing in the, the latest of things to keep on top of things. Um, and to some extent, it can be difficult for you as an organization to understand what your software as a service and infrastructure as a service providers have, um, in terms of this kind of vulnerability. Which is all a really complicated way to say security is super hard, <laughs> and just I want to I want to just I want to say this as often as possible. The game that we are playing is very very hard. Um, even if things are going your way, um, it's it's difficult for you to look at your systems and be like, I'm comfortable with where I am. Um, and so yeah, um, open SSL as opposed to to log4j. There, there are certainly things that made Log4j uh, trickier, um, and 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 Log4j certainly was the more important of the two phones. Like we're continuing to see, to this day, literally this morning at my Intel briefing, my weekly Intel briefing with my team, having Log4j show up in terms of IRs and different application stuff. It is it is almost where are we? Yeah, almost a year on from Log4j, and and it's still. Um, really? A very common. Damn. Yeah, but time goes fast, and you're old. Um, <laughs> time, um, it, it is still a very common initial vector um, for uh, for not the most common. Well, and the real but, problem but with these. Right, but I mean, the the, the real problem here is uh, not so much like who, who, how quick can you patch this? It's it's what happened before. You patch like if I was a bad guy trying to go after log for you know vulnerable systems with uh, this phone with log for J with any of that like I would just want to get in there put my shit on there and be quiet for a while until like this all blew over 
and then, you know, do the thing I want to do. Like, I'd just be looking to use this to get access and some type of persistence to come back to later, right? There's always, like, there's always a that, land rush component to these things, right? Um, and and it was, what's kind of amusing to me is that there's some, some like, we kind of track different segments. And so we definitely have visibility into some segments better than we do. So, like, no, no company has really good visibility into the pace at which um, state-sponsored APTs are developing and moving moving um, capability. Um, but in terms of things that we see and we can attribute fairly easily, um, Asian coin mining operations are like the fastest to develop a VOM and get it into their systems. Like literally, we will see it within like three hours of the patch going out. We will start seeing weird shit in our honeypots. Um, that that course for those bitcoins. How often? How many times have you seen this happen? It ha- It seems like it happens like every time. Like like like. For how long? Uh, it, uh, <laughs> it's couple like, years. Who are these fast I've, devs? Like, like that I've noticed. Like prior yeah, to, they could have one person literally if the frequency is not that high. That's what I'm asking, right? It could just be yeah. one dude who's really good. It's likely yeah. one dude. Yep, yep, yep. And so, you know, and back to the statement that, like, everything's everything's kind of challenging until someone solves it and then everybody can do it. Like, that, that kind of problem is going to Yeah, they may have one, like, really fast, like, sharp, super smart. Yep, 100% believe that. Um, and then we'll, and then we start to see, um, with a, a much longer tail, um, some of the um, access brokers, initial access brokers, um, like Eastern European countries and South American companies country is kind of coming into play um in the days and weeks afterwards but it always does seem like first out of the gate are these are these coin miners this really feels well, like we'll a stage right bug to me yeah yeah something that also, people made a big deal mean? out of and then determined that ah uh, we can't probably hit it on anything but i definitely hit stuff with stage fright that like very specific targets um so i think probably someone will exploit this bug at some point on some target uh, but i don't think anyone will ever really see it happen that makes sense to broaden the scope of the conversation um one of the things that i think the security community and i'm I'm particularly talking about um defensive practitioners um who have like who are fighting day-to-day to keep systems up and don't have time to go monkey around and really dig into some of the, the red site stuff is, is these sort of concepts in terms of there is no absolute um, this is exploitable or this is not exploitable. If a vulnerability puts a system into a state that is not planned for by the code, then at some point there may be a situation where that state is useful. Um, and that's, that's kind of the key piece. Um, in, our, in our last take on this topic, I think one of the things that, that came up that I thought was super interesting is we were talking about the software bill of material stuff and the SBOM. Um, mm-hmm. And we went through, t- to some extent, and I think it's interesting what we're talking about, having trouble tracking down OpenSSL and statically compiled binaries. That's where, where an SBOM is really super useful. Like where if you have a de- declaration that you're using this version in, in something, I don't have to do these next things. But one of the, the very funny things that was said, but funny in the sense that it's not something I had thought frequently about, and I don't think most people have thought about, is we were talking about... Um, how to use this bug against advers- or, or your targets if you're an exploit developer. And it may be that you are holding a bug in three, um, a different kind of stack overflow, um, but you couldn't beat the, um, the stack cookie. And this gives you the opportunity to see the stack cookie, potentially depending on a whole bunch of things that we're not going to cover. Um, but it is, is a possibility that you might be able to do that. Um, and the stack may not change state between that and the time that you're able to use your original bone. And what, what Lorraine said is, if you have a target that you haven't been able to beat yet, I always have the SBOM for that target. I know what libraries they're using. I know what their stack looks like. And if my job is to penetrate that target, I have a running list. And every time something comes up for that, it's a revisit the problem space. Okay, now I have this, and to an exploit developer, this is a tool. Now I have this tool. 
this tool allows me to do the following thing that nobody is scared of. I can look someplace that I'm not normally allowed to look. How scary can that possibly be? What happens to be that now I can look someplace where I need to know just that thing, and that gets me past things. And so the the idea that exploit developers, and particularly when we're talking about state-sponsored adversaries who are, are persistent um, and have the time and and um, investment to, to make these kind keep these kind keep track of these kind of things, they will hold and, and you know and understand that their obligation is to gain access, and so they will continuously revisit the problem space. Is there a new tool I have? You know, do I have a new technique? Is there is there a change in what uh, what I can do? It's in my understanding of what is exploitable and not have changed. Um, has their SBOM changed? Have they upgraded their Android to to a modern version with a different implementation of um, of the heap, which now changes the problem state? And now this bug that before I couldn't get to now is executable. This is this is the more important part of the podcast than going over the kind of the detailed piece of this open SSL pieces. This is what you're facing, you know, if you're if you're handling um, sophisticated adversaries. Like your your interpretation of what the problem space based in what you're seeing on Twitter is certainly applicable because there's really smart people on Twitter for 95, 98% of the world. You don't know what percentage you're in, right? And so as you're making these sort of determinations, you're, you certainly need to incorporate what you're learning on Twitter and what you're learning on security blogs and, you know, when you read Datadogs, write them and everything else. But you also need to know that it all can come falling apart if you don't know certain things about what adversaries are coming at you with. And that's the that's that's why I say everything is really hard until someone does it once, and then it's very easy because they've solved the problem and they can show someone else how to solve it too. Well, and that's the tricky part, right? Defenders, um, well, the folks on the offensive side definitely have a better idea of what the defender has in their environment and the tools that they're using and the software that they're using than the other way around than the defender has about their adversary. Right. I think they have like a thought uh, scale problem on the defender side, right? Well, there's definitely a scale problem on the defender side. Yeah, but even like the way that you have to think about vulnerabilities on the defender side is a scale problem. Like you cannot afford to think about vulnerabilities the way an attacker thinks about vulnerabilities because an attacker's focus is on the pieces in that S-bomb, like for that one program, right? If you're a defender you have to think about the entire problem space of all computing for vulnerabilities, right? Mm-hmm. And so what you don't have the luxury mm-hmm. to do is think the way an attacker does, which is thinking about vulnerabilities as like weird machine uh, pieces. So the way that an attacker thinks about exploiting something is that you, you think about a program, any program can be modeled like a Turing machine, right? So like there's a set of states that the programmer intended to exist and you move from one state to the other through the program until it does the thing that you wanted it to do. Every time there's a bug, that means that there is an un, uh, a state that was unanticipated and unknown to the person who architected the state machine in the first place. And so that lets you do something they did not intend. And so your job is to just be a programmer of weird machine states, right? That's it. Like uh, a vulnerability to me is a way that I can write uh, metacode on that program. And so you don't write metacode with a single call. You do five calls. You just manipulate the, the system state until it's in a state you want it to be in with those pieces you've got, those primitives. I would love to do a whole episode sometime on just like the weird perfection Tetris-esque puzzle that is exploit chains and how somebody with your skill set, Lorraine, would like look at a problem space and put together the weird grouping or, or chain of tools that you would need to approach a specific machine state in a specific piece of software. I think that'd be an interesting episode to do sometime. Yeah. I would have to prep that because I can't use any of my old stuff. Cause it, it just seems like a big weird puzzle. Yeah. It right. Is, yeah. Like there's, but you are finding just, the pieces, the pieces are hidden. Right. And there's already a puzzle there and it's got a picture that makes sense. And everyone 
is looking at that picture, right? Well, is it you're looking at more like that or you know the shapes that you can make and have available to slide in there, so you're just looking for those voids that you know you have tools for? Oh, yeah. The, uh, modern exploitation is a lot of time spent hunting through objects to be like, all right, I need an object that's a multiple of two plus eight. It's got to have just a single V table, not two V tables. And I got to be able to control the data in it in this particular way. And it's size like this. Okay. Now I have to look through the entire program to find a structure or a class that is like that in the assembly. Go. That was stage fright. I think the place that you... S- I think the place that's most well-documented, like if you want to dig around for this as a listener, um, look for like Google. um, I think there's a write-up I'm looking. I haven't gone through this, but it looks promising um, from Project Zero called A Very Deep Dive into iOS Exploit Chains Found in the Wild. Um, The place I hear, I originally kind of ran into this with the Rock Gadgets sort of um, um, conversation um, earlier for Windows stuff. But where I hear about it mostly now is in iPhone exploitation, um, where you have to have a sandbox escape um, and an initial um, bone, and you have to be able to handle stuff in the kernel as well as you kind of get out of these little pieces um, that they've built protection-wise. Um, and that's a that's a um, you know it's looking like that's a good blog to to look at. Um, I don't know if you know Ian Beer um, at Project Zero Learning, but uh, he wrote this. Um, that looks like a good place to kind of just look at this. You're not gonna I, I, unless you're in this space. I don't think you're gonna understand everything in there, but like. Um, it's a good place to just look at kind of what an attacker thinks of, of looking at the problem space as well. I would say it's even at a, a lower level than that, right? Like the a lot of the iPhone chains are, okay, own this program, okay, own this program, okay, break out of the sandbox, okay, I, right? Uh, those are like at a different process level. I'm talking within a single process. Single process, yeah. Yeah. A lot of people think, oh, I hit the bug, I need to get execution right now. And that is not the case. Like you, you hit the bug and you just like tilt the program a little bit to the side. Okay. Now I can do something else. Okay. Now I hit it again back, you know? So it's within the program. If you have, if you have a bug that is non-destructive, then that's, that's how you work it. We have been going on for a while. And I know Matt knows that because he started talking real yeah, fast. Yeah, I can see it's 222. Hitting that wrap it up box. So I, I want to go, uh, I want to go back around one time, just get a, a closing thought parting shot uh from both you guys and then i do want to say that next week we have uh next episode rather we have uh something different exciting we're going to have dave liebenberg on uh dave is on your team matt yep uh and he is going to bring us some exciting news as we uh we can go ahead and tease it now as we'll, but we'll be releasing that episode when we debut our end of year report uh from our uh intelligence team we will be giving and him mushrooms first. What? That would be amazing. That would really be an amazing episode. Uh, <laughs> but we're going to do that. And then uh, hopefully at the end of the year, we're going to have a nice Christmas episode to come out. And and we'll call it a year at that point. Uh, but closing thoughts, parting shots. Uh, Matt, what's on your mind? Um, I want to say like, go exploit something like like i think i I really i've said this before and i really do believe this like like my my security career has there's a number of different places where it's it's made some radical changes in terms of my the way i think about the space but like the 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 day before i executed my first exploit um during the abo training that lorraine gave us and the day after i was in two completely different minds of security um when you when you understand that um, the things that you're seeing on your computer are the endpoints of like crazy uh, machinations inside the computer, um, and that sometimes those machinations, you no one no one on the planet will understand it or have ever thought about it until you as an exploit developer look at it and you're the first person is like, what is the stack state at this particular point in the execution of this program, and that suddenly becomes super important, and I can guarantee you. Very vanishingly few developers ever think like that. Um, and as a defender, to have like really internalized that, like, there is a whole part to this fight that is 
crazily basic, like in that it is foundational and it is it, this is the way it is, um, but is also abstracted away from everything you interact with computers, I think is a really important mindset to have banged into your head if you want to be a sophisticated defender and make the right choices about how to allocate your time. Lorraine, how about you? If you don't understand this stuff and you're a defender, the stuff you're building is wrong. Hmm. Interesting. Merry Christmas. Also true. <laughs> yeah. Merry Christmas. You suck at your job. Oh, uh, you know, like you get stuff like when OpenBSD decided they were going to spend a lot of work to change their compiler to remove C2 to try to stop ROP, and they did absolutely nothing. You know, or when we report a buffer overflow and the response is, okay, we made the buffer bigger. Like, <laughs> oh, oh shit. Yeah, that happened. I'm not going to say who it was. <laughs> But that absolutely no, happens. We'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. <laughs> so until next time, stay safe, stay secure, and uh, cheers. Bye, everybody.